Chatua Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week, the affordable Jaguar, the X300, and why you should buy one. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott, very pleased to be with you this week as we have another fantastic interview. Really looking forward to this one. We're going to be waxing lyrical about one of the most affordable entry-level Jaguars out there at the moment. I've owned two of them. I love them. It's the car I aspired to have for years and managed it, but it didn't set me back much money at all. And it is a fantastic route to join the Jaguar community and enjoy true Jaguar motoring. It is, of course, the XJ6, and in particular, the 90s X300s. And I've enlisted the help of my old pal from the motoring press, Sam Skelton, to tell us about his collection of X300s and why they're such a great car for everyday use. That's all to come this week. But first, don't forget, if you want to join us for our big track day at Blyton Park, it is open for booking now. And as a member of the JEC, you can experience a track day in the safest possible surroundings that we can offer you. Blyton Park, brilliant track. Uh, If you were to have an accident, you'd literally need to fill up with petrol on the way off into the gravel trap before you hit anything. It is that big a size of a runoff area. So take the plunge, give it a go, come and drive your Jaguar as it should be driven. It's on June the 10th and you can book really easily via the website at jec.org.uk. Just click the events button there, fill out the form, pay your money, and we'll see you there for a fantastic day, which is also open to novices as well. So if you've never tried a track day before, come along, we'll look after you, we'll show you the ropes, and we'll allow you to use the track without being intimidated, shall we say, by any of the faster cars out there. jc.org.uk. Have a look on the website there under the events section. You'll find it, and it's really easy to book and come along. Also, another update for you on Drive It Day. This is National Drive It Day for historic vehicles here in the UK. It's an initiative by the Federation of British Historic Vehicle Clubs, which is part of the international group of Fever who protect the rights of historic vehicle owners around the globe. And this year, the National Drive It Day as you've probably heard me talk about before on this podcast, was in support of Childline. And it was a massive success despite the difficulties of running events during the pandemic. Some of the events were small, socially distanced groups. Some were just individual journeys. But however people got out in their Jaguars on the 25th of April this year, the UK's roads were graced by thousands of classic Jags collectively hitting the lanes to enjoy and show off the historic vehicles and transport heritage of the UK. And the amazing thing is, through all of the collective efforts of the historic vehicle community, the amount raised, which is well over 30 grand and still building, means that the historic vehicle community will join together to fund what they call one unforgettable day, meaning the NSPCC's Childline activities would be completely funded by our community for a whole 24-hour period. It was an ambitious aim, but they've managed it, we've managed it, and the NSPCC CEO, Sir Peter Wanless, said that the lasting impact of what we've contributed there on hundreds of children who will have counselling through the Childline service that day might be the first time they've reached out for support, and it may well save lives. 
it's incredibly special, especially at a time when charities are struggling so hard to make money to keep their activities going. You can see all of the pictures from Drive It Day at driveitday.co.uk. And this week was an important week for the UK. Well, England at least. There are various different restrictions that have changed around the United Kingdom. But in England at least, May the 17th, last Monday, marked the easing of restrictions and the ability for us all to go out to the pub again, basically, which we've been looking forward to. Hotels are back open. And things are starting, at least in a small way, to get back to normal. Groups of up to 30 people are allowed to meet now, but the rule of six still applies indoors. But mainly it meant that things like motor museums can open. And so I caught up with the managing director of the British Motor Museum at Gaydon in Warwickshire to hear about what they've got on offer since opening on May the 17th. We've got the um, E-Type Evolution exhibition, which is the 60th birthday celebration of E-Type. And then we've got one other exhibition that's going to come together a bit later in the summer. Um, unfortunately, I can't tell you too much about that one yet, but it's if you're a British car enthusiast, you're going to love it. Uh, you just have to wait a little bit longer for the announcements on that one. We'll wait and um, see with eagerness. Keep, keep your eye on our website because it's going to be interesting summer. The great partnership that you have with Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust next door comes through in the museum because you have the, all of that wonderful collection of cars um, to sort of wander around and look at and, and add into the collection. And of course, the top floor of that is full of weird and wonderful things from British Motor uh, Heritage and and the story of the development of so many cars is up on that top floor i kind of call it the freak show of uh, british leyland in many respects because there are all sorts of cars grafted onto bits of other cars to create prototypes isn't there and uh, you know you really do get to see a full cross-section of how so many of the iconic cars that we all celebrate came to be and often they were quite ugly journeys before they bloomed into the swans that we all love weren't they absolutely yeah the the, the collection center uh, first floor is is as you say it's uh, well it's got the whole land rover's history it's you know there's there's quite some cars up on that floor and of course it overlooks the um, balcony overlooks the um, museum's workshops and renovation workshops so there's quite a an atmosphere in that building when uh, particularly when the cars are fired up down in a workshop Jeff Coop there, Managing Director of the British Motor Museum at Gaydon in Warwickshire. Do get down there and have a look at that fantastic sounding E-Type anniversary exhibition. And I know that there are a lot of superstar E-Types to be seen in that exhibition throughout the summer. Their website is britishmotormuseum.co.uk and we are talking about X300s next after our Hall of Fame. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast Hall of Fame, we are inducting someone from Chile. Richard, tell us more. Introduce him. Indeed we are, Wayne. Yes, good morning to you. Uh, Alicio Salazar, uh, who was born on the 14th of November 1954, uh, a Chilean racing driver and in fact the only person from Chile ever to race a Formula One car in his career. Mm, and he had a interesting route into motorsport, didn't he? Because he was sponsored by Family Money. What was the background there? You know, I'm, I was never truly sure as to that. I mean, he, he came from, as you quite rightfully say, a wealthy background. And he arrived on the scene when Formula One, not only was it in relative infancy, but there was also an independent 
Formula One British Championship. And he came over in 1980 with reasonable funding and actually drove a, of all things, a Williams FW07. And he actually won at Silverstone, which led to his move to Formula One in 1981 with the March team. Yeah, incredible. And a, a nice career, actually, when you look back on it up to the point that we'll cover in just a moment when he turned up with TWR in 1990 mm. when it all went a little bit wrong. But back to Formula One mm. and he had a bit of a coming together with Nelson Piquet, didn't he? Well, he did. Um, from his March, just sort of backtracking a little bit, from his drive at March, he switched halfway through the season to drive for the Enzyme team, which was well known in those days, and actually finished sixth in the Dutch Grand Prix. But in 1982, he drove for the ATS team, um, Gunter Schmidt's team, which was very well known at the time, quite an ebullient character who owned the team. Finished fifth in the San Marino Grand Prix. But again, that was a time when the Formula One teams were at war and there were only seven teams actually entered because FISA, what was then under the control of the Frenchman Jean-Marie Belles and Foca under the control of Bernie Ecclestone, were at war. And the, the incidents that you refer to actually <laughs> happened in 1982. Um, he was over. He was in an overtaking situation with the uh, race leader Nelson Piquet at the German Grand Prix, and they collided in the chicane. And Piquet, who was actually a very, very close friend of Valencia's, was so, so angry and so, you know, full of adrenaline. The, the clip on YouTube is legendary. He got out of the car and started kicking and punching Alicio across the gravel trap. And Alicio didn't respond because of their friendship. And I think, obviously, once Nelson had calmed down a little bit back in the motorhomes, you know, the two sort of shook hands and carried on being firm friends. Well, he did have a reasonable amount of talent. He must have done to have got into Formula One. But some of the press were quite unkind about him, especially in the mid-80s, weren't they? Yeah, they were. I mean, in the 83 year, he, he entered Formula One again with the Ram team, John McDonald and Nick Ralph, who were based out of Vista, uh, both of whom very experienced uh, team racers in their own right. Um, but the car was very, very slow, and he only managed to qualify twice. He uh, he finished, I think, 14th at the Acura circuit in Rio de Janeiro, and, um, and then he retired in Long Beach um, due to a gearbox failure, if I recall. And the problem was also after the Chilean economic crisis, of those early 1980s, he was forced to leave F1. Um, he did a bit in Formula 3000. Uh, he went to the South American Formula 3 Championship for a while. Uh, he even began to rally. Um, he, he got involved in the hill climbing season back in Chile in a Toyota Corolla. But it was in 1987-88 that Tom Walkinshaw noticed him. And it didn't take very long for you know Tom to uh, second him to the team. Well, there was a bit of a rumour at the time that Tom had only brought him into the team because he came with a generous sponsorship package. But I think Tom saw more in him than that, didn't he? Yes, and also that era, even now, of course, you know, it's great if, you, if you've got budget with you. But in that particular era of sports cars and Formula One, bringing a budget with you was very important. And Tom was very good at hunting down people like that. Um, he joined in uh, 88. He did the FIA World Sports Prototype Championship. And in fact, he, he won uh, the C1 class at the 88 Fuji 1000 Ks race, driving a Spice, um, one of the Gordon Spice engineered cars at that time. But Tom really looked at him and said, right, here's an opportunity for you. And in 89, I think if my memory serves me right, he teamed up with Alan and Michel Ferte, both of whom were very quick and did a great job in the Jaguar XCR9. But of course, his, his best result would be the 1990 event when he went and did the historics. But uh, 
it never it never came to pass with Le Mans because it, this is the Hall of Fame. You should almost enter poor old Alicia as the Hall of Infamy because of the decision Tom took to take him out of the number three car and replace him with Martin Brundle, who obviously went on to be part of the 1990 winning trio. Well, this is an example of how harsh and brutal motorsport can be. The team were doing very well in the race at that point, but you were there Mm. on the pit wall in 1990. Tom was even more driven, even for Tom Walkinshaw, than he had been before, because, of course, as you mentioned, TWR had been beaten in 89 by the Sauber Mercedes team. Tom was absolutely determined that wasn't going to happen again, so everything was dependent on a win, Mm. and he made a real strange decision at about you know, seven o'clock in the morning or something, the following uh, Sunday morning, to remove Salazar from the car. And in fact, so quickly was that decision made that actually his name was still on the car and it crossed the start-finish line at the end of the race, wasn't it? Yeah, it did indeed. And in fact, Martin's original car, the number one car, um, was pulled out of the running. We had the four cars there. And as I've said before on previous chats with you, we were running one, two, three, four, you know, in the early hours of the morning. But we lost Martin's car with electrical problems. And Martin, therefore, got the opportunity, you know, to get a decent rest and some sleep. And as we went into the early hours of the morning, um, Tom literally, without real consultation with anybody, uh, pulled Martin and Salazar to one side, and the conversation took place. And the first thing I knew about it was I went to the back of the garage, and Alicio was was looking like a broken man with his um, overalls around his waist, sitting in the motorhome. And I looked in, and Tom said, not now, promo. And uh, about 10 minutes later, um, I went back out and Alicio was out of his race suit. Martin was getting suited up. And I said to Tom, what's the game plan? He said, listen, he said, I intend to win the mom. He said, Brundle's, you know, a better man to do the job. Um, So as you were, crack on, you know, Martin's in the car in the next session. And of course, I think what it was, because of the relationship that I've talked about before between Tom and Martin, there was an absolute trust between the two of them. And, and, you know, Tom, a former racer, Martin, then a very competitive racer. They had several discussions and the car was a little bit weak in a couple of areas and Tom wanted the car to win. So he popped Martin in with um, with, Price, uh, with Price Cobb and, of course, big John Nielsen. And the rest is history. Um, what it meant was Alicia was moved into the number four car, but that retired at the 20-hour mark with mechanical problems. And, you know, having been taken out of what was the car that everybody, I think, felt and knew was going to win, he, he felt very shallow. And we didn't even see him at the end of the race. He collected his bag and just, that was it. He was gone. I mean, it really does read like the script from the Steve McQueen 1970 Le Mans film, doesn't it? Where he sort of goes and drags the uh, Steve McQueen character, Michael Delaney, out of his caravan and puts him in the car and tells him to win Le Mans. And, you know, it's almost as if Tom was reenacting that film in that moment. But it had a huge impact on Salazar's career. In fact, it ended it, didn't it? Well, it, 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 it ended it certainly in terms of sports car racing and F1. But in fact... Um, for a short while afterwards, you, you know, with no drive at all, he went off and co-hosted uh, a TV show, um, the Chilean version of a TV show. But he had the opportunity. He, he joined up with um, the Moretti team in IMSA in 94. Um, he raced in the World Exxon Sports Car Championship in 94-5, you know, with the Ferrari Triple Three. He then signed a contract with Dick Simon Racing to go and race in Carp and IndyCar. And when the IRL and Carp split... Salazar chose to compete in the new series where he became, you know, a pretty regular top driver in the series. He, uh, he, he had 
um, four, I think it was, top ten results uh, at the Indy 500. And his best place was a start from third and a finish in third position. And uh, in eight, uh, sorry, at 97, he um, had his only victory in the IRL series where he won in Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And then after that, he did various things in the Craftsman Truck Series and a couple of other things. But then really, I think he did some rallying. Um, he did several things. He did the Grand Prix Masters Series that ran, in fact, uh, and was a late replacement for Alan Jones, who admitted that he wasn't fit enough to drive a Grand Prix Masters car. Uh, and in 2006, he raced in both of the races in Qatar and England. A bit more rallying, and then I think, truthfully, you know, he's gone on to a more peaceful form of life. But a remarkable guy and a great career across many areas of motorsport. And sadly, the man who never got to win them all. Uh, whether he would have done or not in that number three car, we'll never know, of course, because Martin Brundle was the man who took the seat and therefore took the win. Well, there was speculation at the time that Tom Walkinshaw had made the decision so that a British man drove a British car across the line. But us Brits, we like the underdog. And it actually kind of backfired a little bit on TWR because Autosport magazine made Salazar their 1990 Racer of the Year. So we'll follow that up by making him our Hall of Fame inductee on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Uh, So, uh, yeah. Thank you to Salazar and thank you to you, Richard. Great pleasure, Wayne. As always, nice to talk to you. Have a good week and we'll find somebody new for next week. Look forward to it. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're talking about 90s XJ6s. Now, these cars are incredibly affordable and also a practical but luxurious route into Jaguar ownership. And they represent an era of Jaguar when retro styling was all the rage. That's what we were into with our Jaguars then. And also that previous quality concerns have been addressed by an injection of cash from Ford, who had only just bought Jaguar in the late 80s. So today, online auction sites are classified as full of XJ6s looking for new homes. So why should you buy one? Could you buy one? Can you live with them? Are they any good? Well, to tell us more and to give his own experience, we're joined on this podcast by motoring journalist Sam Skelton. Hiya, Sam. Hello, Wayne. It's good to have you on, Sam. And uh, you and I have worked with each other for many years in and around the motoring press, and I never quite know what you're up to. So what are you up to at the moment? Well, I'm freelance, which, as you know as well, basically means I'll work for anyone who pays me. However... The projects that I'm most keenly involved with at the moment are a series of bookazines for Kelsey Publishing. I'm doing 16 a year. They're 100-page publications, a compilation of old material on a specific subject with some new material as well. I'm also heavily involved with the Haggerty Price Guide, and among other cars, I look after the values for Jaguars. Fantastic. And that is, of course, one of the Bibles that we use to judge the values of Jaguars, especially classic Jaguars, as the market changes and fluctuates. So looking at X300s, which is really what we're here to talk about, how have the values changed? Have they changed at all? I mean, they do seem to be rock bottom and stay in there. Five years ago, I would have said yes to that. I mean, five years ago, I got my first one. I was given the thing. However, now values are seriously starting to shift. I bought 
my two most recent X300s back in August, September last year, and both of them were very much in the three-figure price back bracket. Both of them were very good cars. The one that I paid 350 quid for back in August, I swapped in February for a Citroen CX that was worth nearly three grand. Prices on X300s are, if you wouldn't say they've already gone above Bangadam, they're certainly heading that way and fast. Why do you think that is, Sam? Is it that other Jaguars have gone up in value and that's bringing that end of the market up? Or is it just a symptom of the fact that X300s, that era of Jaguar now, is being seen by a new generation as their classic Jaguars? It's both. It's people of my sort of age who are looking at these things thinking, that was one of the cars to be seen in when we were growing up. Let's get hold of them. It's also the fact that as the market rises for Series 3s, it's pulling the XJ40s up, and as they're going up, they're pulling the X300s up. I think part of it as well is that it's the last truly DIY-friendly Jaguar, because there are, if you buy cheap, you're at risk of getting a lot of issues with an X308. I mean, don't get me wrong, an X308 is not inherently a bad car, but they have a lot of them have been abused and certainly at the bottom end of the market you might still be getting cars that have got plastic timing chain tensioners on them that could break plastic thermostat housings you might have advanced corrosion underneath as i had on an x308 that i bought quite cheap the x300 tends not to suffer with a lot of this and it's it's like an old mercedes or an old peugeot in that by and large an x300 xj6 or even a late xj40 is pretty bulletproof. Mm. I mean, those engines were developed so well throughout that really long lifespan that they had. That straight six had been in every Jaguar and pretty much derived from, you know, the Jaguars of the 60s. So it had been well tested and well proven and, as you say, pretty bulletproof, which makes them ideal cars if you need a classic car that you can use as a daily driver as well. Well, I would agree. I mean, I went through some fairly dark days back when I had the first one mentally. And a lot of things ended up slipping my radar, including basic maintenance checks. That engine still kept going. And it had done 170,000 miles when I bought it, which by many people's standards is a car that's already fit for scrap. And it just couldn't be killed. And that is what cemented the love in me for X300s. The fact that here is a car that is attractive to look at, comfortable, I don't need it to actually seat four people or take much luggage, so the fact that they're laid out really quite poorly doesn't bother me. And it's just something that will keep going. And it's the driving experience, isn't it? You know, there are very few saloon cars of the 90s that have that kind of practical daily usability but that have that view over the bonnet and it is an incredible view it sort of stretches out in front of you with a big bulge there and put your foot down and you really do get that lovely straight six growl don't you well absolutely it is a special place to be especially for the money that they were until recently every time you get in your x300 there's a small celebration i think where on the one hand, you know you haven't paid a lot of money for it, but on the other hand, it feels like an occasion. You know, you sort of slip into your smoking jacket, pop in there, and there's wood all around you and leather. <laughs> it does feel like you're in a premium car, and that's true even though some of them are cracking on for 30 years old now. I would say it depends on the X300, because if you've got a nice one, then absolutely right. But for me, 
if you've got one that's maybe a bit down at heel, the appeal's entirely different. The appeal of a down at heel one, it's hard to quite put this into words, but it's a bit like buying a house that's perhaps Victorian or perhaps older that is in need of some love and care. It's not perfect, but that almost tells its own story of how it's been used and how it's been loved before. Uh, there is no other car like an XJ6. I mean, yeah, they were criticised for having a poor layout. There's not a lot of leg room in the back, but that big boot, big engine, and a lovely cabin in between. It is a unique car, isn't it? It's a unique car. It takes up far more space than it ought to for what it gives you. <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't seem to matter. And I also used to edit a Mercedes magazine. One of the other cars I have on fleet is a late 90s E-Class with a V8 in it. It's a far more competent car at being a car, but it just doesn't have the charm. Obviously, you've written about X300s in your working life as a motoring journalist. Impart some of that knowledge and some of your experience to us then, Sam. If I'm sat here listening to this podcast while you and I are waxing lyrical about our X300s and I think, well, okay, I'm going to go and get one and you pop onto eBay. I mean, it is a bit of a minefield because there are cars there from about 200 quid upwards, aren't there? Some that are basically good for parts and not much else right the way up to some quite pricey now x300s that have done very low mileage have been cosseted all their lives and then of course there's a whole gap in between so what should we look for when we're buying an x300 especially one that we want to use regularly i have no doubt that a lot of your listeners will disagree with me on this but i think there are two ways to buy and run an x300 and you don't do anything in the middle the first way is buy something that's so cheap you can afford to throw it away, give it basic maintenance and use it until it ends up dying probably of rust. The other way is to take your time, look for a really, really good example, be prepared to spend the money and then be prepared to spend the money looking after it. Anything in the middle has a risk of costing more than it's realistically viable to keep going. With that said, at the bottom of the market, you can get lucky. I mean, I was telling you earlier about one that I bought for 350 quid. I bought that with really quite atrocious photographs. I bought it sight unseen, and it was a case of, well, it's the right colour. I can use it as a panel donor for my XJR if I need to. And I turned up, and it was really rather nice. The days of cars like that at that budget are getting fewer and further between, but you can still do it. So don't be prepared to write a car just because it's cheap or just because the photos are bad. When you get there and when you're looking at the car... If you turn it on and it makes, how can I put this? It makes sort of a mooing noise. <laughs> it's the top timing chain tensioner, and you should probably look at having that replaced if it's starting to do that. You will know the noise I mean by the description of a moo if you've ever heard it. And if you ever hear it, you'll understand what I mean if you've not heard it before. Moving on from that, rust is going to be the biggest issue you face. You can get rust on the sills. You get rust right in the leading edge of the sills at the back. You get rust, obviously, on the arches, but it doesn't really matter as much on the arches. Floor pans can go, especially around the front. Mechanically, if it's a really high miler, you might have a worn diff. You'll notice that by when you put it into drive or reverse, you'll get a clonking noise. Gearboxes tend to be fairly hardy. It's not easy to kill the box, even in an XJR, because it's vastly over-specified. The only way you'll kill it is by driving it like an idiot and trying to do hard nought to 60 times. Lower spec ones, the boxes are fairly indestructible as long as you change the fluid regularly. Likewise, the engine, you don't really have much to worry about there. 
there might be the occasional oil leak but they do that supercharged ones make sure the superchargers had the oil changed at some point in the last few years apart from that there's not really an awful lot that can break on them the electrics can sometimes be a little bit hit and miss aircon might not always work but the way i see it is their toys and they don't affect the basic running of the car they're things that you can sort out when you've got it as a basic package it's fairly solid as long as you get one that's relatively rot free well at this point sam's internet died so we reverted to the good old-fashioned technology of the phone and uh, right we're back on it now sam and uh, this is why you sound different i just have to explain these things but we were talking about the buyer's guide for the xj6 there we should probably walk those that are new to the xj6 through some of the models then because there is actually a wider variety than you might appreciate so starting at the bottom of the range you've got the xj6 which is the entry-level model. As I said, it came as standard with steel wheels, cloth seats, manual box, no aircon. I seem to recall aircon was something like a two grand option, as was an automatic gearbox at the time, but most have had them specced. Above the XJ6, but only slightly, was the XJ Sport, which was aimed at younger people. It had a different type of seat, different colour split on the interior. The top of the dashboard was always black from the factory. The carpets were always black from the factory the wood was always dark maple from the factory rather than being walnut it like i say it was targeted at a younger buyer it had dimple alloys was largely de-chromed on the outside except for the rear plinth and the grill the grill had body colored veins instead of silver ones then further up the range than that you got the sovereign which was the Jaguar that everyone thinks of as being a Jaguar chrome window frames, burr walnut instead of straight grain. It had the same seats as next J6 when it was specified with leather. It had, I believe the Sovereign always had the toolkit as standard under the bonnet, the lower specs didn't. It had aircon as standard, auto as standard, but manual as a no cost option, alloys as standard, lots of extra kit that you expect to see with a Jag was standard on the Sovereign. Then, moving up the range from there, you get the Daimler 6, which is, broadly speaking, a sovereign with crinkle-cut grille and crinkle-cut rear plinth of a different design, different wheels, different seats, wood with inlays in it, and pretty much every option that you could have on a sovereign thrown at it. Also optional were individual rear seats, which you could get on later sovereigns as an option, but they only made about 40 sovereigns with those. At the top of the range is the XJR, and it's a bit cheeky to call it an X300 because it had its own model code, it was the X306. And apart from the engine, it actually has more in common with an XJ12 of the same era. It's got the twin fuel pumps in the tank, it's got the same gearbox as the V12, it's just got the straight six engine with a supercharger bolted to it. Later on, in 1996, I believe it was, as a sort of a semi-run-out, semi-fleet special, Jaguar launched the Executive, which was an XJ6 with, if memory serves me right, about six grand's worth of options thrown on a standard, including sports seats and dimple alloys but it sold for about 4,000 more than the standard XJ6, so the parts effectively represented a saving of about two grand. You could get long wheelbases from 1995 
you couldn't get a long wheelbase Sport or a long wheelbase XJR, but you could get XJ6 and Sovereign. Around the same time the XJ6 4-litre was introduced, you could never get a 4-litre as an executive from the factory. I mean, the one issue with daily driving an XJR has to be the fuel economy. I think 17 oh, yeah. is the best most people seem to get out of them. We must make that clear. I average that, but if I'm, if I'm on a long run, I can get low to mid-20s. And it, if I'm really, really trying and driving like a vicar, I have seen 30 out of mine. Wow, incredible. With a tailwind. I would guess with a tailwind and <laughs> slipstreaming lorries as much as I could, yes. But, <laughs> yeah. but it is theoretically possible to achieve 30. In the real world, 24, 25 is the best you'll get. But that's no worse. In fact, it's better than the Series 3 I was running for a while. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. And the Series 3 was averaging 16.5 on my commute, and I think the that was when I was working for one particular publisher. And the XJR on the same run was averaging 19. So if you come into it from an older XJ, an XJR won't be too punitive. Mm. If you come into it from a Ford Focus, you'll want to curl up in a ball and basically jibber for an hour <laughs> when you get your first fuel bill. Yeah, but uh, I suppose that's a buying decision there that perhaps we can all make you know the xjr yeah. fun as it is perhaps is the car you want to use at the weekends when you've saved up all of your shell fuel card points and uh, you can redeem them for a good weekend away but the xj6 is with the standard I mean, straight six engine i mean they're really we, just we not should, too bad are they we should put the xjr into context here you're right I average 19 or so as an average out of my XJR and call it 25 on a run. Out of a 3.2, I average about 22 and on a decent run, maybe 27, 28. And out of a 4 litre, I would average about 25, 26 and I could get 34 on a run. So the 4 litre really does have an economy advantage as well. It's because it's got an electronic gearbox with it effectively rather than the straight mechanical one and it can lock up at what it perceives to be a more effective point plus because the diff's a better ratio because it's got more torque you're effectively at lower revs at any given speed anyway they're an incredible car sam and i like to talk to motoring journalists like this because ultimately you drive cars for a living you could have anything you experience so many different models but you've chosen in your fleet at least to have at least two uh, xj's and that's an accolade for the car isn't it that having driven all of the cars that you do on a day-to-day -day basis you still get get home via your jag i've driven everything from an austin 7 to a bmw i8 and in in my fleet of i think it's 11 cars at the moment i lose count i've got two x300s so they're 20 percent near enough of my fleet mm. yeah it's an accolade for the car i think that is and uh, and i know your long wheelbase sovereign is a little bit poorly at the moment but it is being repaired because it had a bit of a ding on the front wing didn't it <laughs> a bit of a ding on the front wing he says <laughs> what happened was I was on the outside lane of the A1, doing about 65, overtaking a lorry that was on foreign plates. He decided that mirror signal manoeuvre was going to be the other way round. The first I knew of it was when I saw him moving across. I was probably, top front end of the bonnet, probably level with the back end of his cab. I slammed my brakes on. The, there was some sort of 
metal girder down the side of his lorry which hit about two inches back from the door on the back wing went up the back door tore a hole in the front of the back door tore a hole in the back of the front door moved the rods for the release mechanism for the front door carried on up the front door knocked the mirror off bent the front of the roof gutter stoved in the front wing around the arch ouch ouch and he didn't see me and he didn't stop I mean, I remember this because you were searching for parts at the time. I presume you found them okay. I did. The car went into the body shop on the 4th of December and it's still there. <laughs> well, brilliant though, because A, you were able to find the parts, which proves that these cars, you are able to fix them and keep them on the road and repair them as they go. But also that it didn't get written off despite that damage. I actually found the parts. I don't know how your members are going to respond to this, but... I found them from a local banger racer. Really? I I dealt with him before because I had, as part of a cheap car challenge that you know about because you were at the event at which it came to a head, mm -hmm. my initial purchase for that challenge was a Jaguar XJ8 that I'd bought from a trader friend who'd been using it himself and who'd been ferrying his family and his two-year-old kid round in it it transpires that he'd actually been taken in by the little old lady who'd partexted it. I think there was a sob story about it had been a husband's car, and I think what had happened is the MOT garage had said, we'll pass it as a favour, but trade this thing in. The subframe on it at the back had rotted out to the point that it wasn't actually connected to itself. It was shifting about, and it had pulled... It was shifting to the point where it would pull the handbrake on on one side when you lifted off the throttle. Whoa. <laughs> So I thought the best thing to do with that car was to sell, and the person who happened to buy it on eBay was someone who banger races these things. Huh. And he would have dumped in a subframe from another car when that one inevitably goes round the ring. It wasn't a nice one to begin with, so don't cry, anyone. It was truly horrible, but my thinking was, well, cheap car challenge, got to use a Jag. And I couldn't find an X300 at such short notice as I needed one. Mm. Um... This chap had mentioned that he routinely has sixes and eights in, and so I'd kept a note of his number in case I ever needed anything. So it came to the time, and I phoned him, and I said, have you got any long wheelbase doors, and have you got any decent front wings? Finding the panels was easy. I mean, if I'd tried to do it new, it's theoretically still possible, but you're not going to find anything nice, mm. cheap. I think a new back door for a long wheelbase X300, somewhere in the 400 quid region. But by a bit of investigation and going through the, well, effectively classic car network, if you will, you managed to find the part. So how much was it that you paid for the door in the end? 50 quid. There you go. Brilliant. The same for the front door. I think it was 80 quid for the front wing because it was a really good one. Yeah. And this is the thing, isn't it? I had a similar experience with mine when someone decided to take my uh, heated powered wing mirror off on a pass in switzerland and it went bouncing down the road and i sort of patched it together and got home as you do and jaguar still sell them actually x300 wing mirrors if you should need one but they are as you say about 380 400 quid and then you've got to get the colored piece made up to match the color of your car um, but i found one on ebay out of a scrapyard from a car that had sadly died that just happened to be the same color as mine 
and bought it for about 50 quid as well and it wired in no problem and this is the thing with these cars they are a classic car that you can run every day you can with a bit of ingenuity still buy parts quite affordably and if you hear the stories from some of the older members of Jaguar clubs, they'll talk about these days when people used to patch together the cars, but now they're all worth too much money or you can't get the bits for them or they're all concourse show queens. But our X300s, they are at that point where some of those actually earlier XKs and E-types were, say, 30 years ago. It's kind of where we are with our X300s now, isn't it? Well, it's not only that, but... How many times on other things that you might want to use daily have you had to take some trim out or had to take something apart and it's come apart and it's broken when it's done it or it's come apart in a way that says this really wasn't designed to be taken apart ever again. You don't get that with X300s. Every time you take something out of one, you get the sensation that the people who built it knew it would still be around in 25, 30 years, knew that inevitably parts fail and that you would need to replace them and designed it so it could be taken apart and put back together without breaking anything. Mm. Yes, absolutely. They were designed to be worked on and fixed. And as you mentioned the electrics earlier on, they are modular in design. So every bit of electric that might go wrong, you can basically unscrew the big box full of electronics. And in actual fact, in many cases, fix that box and put it back in because most of it's solid state stuff still. I think someone had a go at that with the Sovereign that I have now, the long wheelbase 3.2 before, because when you press the locking button on the remote, it doesn't chirp. And I went and had a look and it transpires that the box for the sounder is actually missing. So I think someone took it out at some point to repair it. And then, well, I know I bought the car as part of a bereavement estate. I suspect that the bloke who did it was probably the previous owner. He died, the part wasn't in the car, and no one knew where it was. A couple of years ago, we launched the youth group of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club to encourage a section of the club that was identifiable for the younger owners, members, drivers, call them what you will, of Jaguars within the JEC. And many people laughed. They said that there wasn't any Jaguars that young people could afford. Well, I think our conversation, Sam, has proven that there are Jaguars that are affordable, not just for young people, but for people of all ages who just want to come and join in what is a great community and enjoy what is one of the best British brands, one of the best British cars out there. And that is what our cars represent, isn't it? I had my first X300 at the age of 25. It came from a friend of mine who was two years younger. I know I know people who've run them since they were 21. There are people on Facebook in various young retro car groups who've got them in the teens. There is really they're accessible cars X300s. There's nothing about them that well. And on top of that, it's always cool when you're young to have a big flash motor in it. It is absolutely yeah. And these are cars that you know, frankly, you had to be flying high in life to have afforded when they were new. But they still have that air of the same quality about them. Absolutely. I think we've sold the X300 nicely, Sam. Do you, would you say XJ6s now, amongst younger retro car fans, are cool? Yes. Without any question or shadow of doubt, they are cool. I mean, there are always people out there, and they inevitably wear rally jackets and light things with blue ovals on the front, who will criticise it because it's an old man's car or will criticise it because it's not from their preferred manufacturer and that is the only one worthy of classic status. But, they are a minority. The 
vast majority of people into the old car scene and especially the vast majority of people in my sort of age bracket will look at an old Jag and will give it the sort of respect it deserves. Admittedly more so at the moment for the XJ40 because it's got the square jawed properly retro look to it but as values increase the day of the X300 will come. Brilliant. I think that's done it for us. We'll go out and buy some more, Sam. I think eBay is tonight <laughs> and, a, and a bottle of wine, which is how I ended up with my last one. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Skelton, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Wayne. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. Well, today I'm recording the podcast up at a wet and windy Donington Park. So uh, we've actually come up for a test session in the Jag and uh, we're actually doing something a little bit different, um, which is something I've never actually done before. And we, instead of uh, concentrating on setting up the car, I've actually got some, some driver tuition. So we've got Chris Diamond, um, who's an ex-actual Jaguar driver himself. He drove one of the um, the Apex GT cars and he's he's raced in Clio Cup and various other disciplines. So I've got some tuition with him today. And uh, um, as I was saying, it is absolutely pouring down with rain, um, real high wind. So it's, it's definitely going to be an entertaining day. So so it's lunchtime at the moment. I've uh, been out in a car. I've had two sessions this morning. First session really was just kind of getting to grips of the car. Um, had Chris sitting in passenger seat with me and just giving me an idea of where I need to be line-wise. Um, he's then been out in the car and, and driven it and, and sort of shown me what the car can do in these conditions and, and set a good benchmark and we've then been able to kind of overlay my driver data against Chris's and see where I can and where I uh, need to improve so it's really interesting seeing all the data actually firsthand rather than just thinking back to what actually happened in the car so he uses a, a, a V-Box system which has um, basically two cameras in the car which sees what you are doing as a driver it also takes um, the GPS lap time um, and the seller in the v-box as well so you can see your braking your throttle um, and then overlay that against his so it's it's really clear to see where we can find time um, obviously downside is absolutely torrential rain so it's really really hard work at the moment the car is just all over the place it's it's so slippery um, and we've been sort of plagued with quite a few um, yellow and red flags through the day but other than that so far so good really early days car feels absolutely great which is which is brilliant we've got the new pads in there so in the first session we spent a few laps bedding those in um, and Donington's next weekend so hopefully we get some better uh, weather for Donington um, but this should give, give us in um, good stead for Donington once we then get back to the actual uh, workshops we'll then check over the car after today and make sure there's no faults um, but yeah we've got the rest of the afternoon with Chris um, and see if we can improve on myself rather than just the car this time um, which is as I said just something we've never done before and uh, hopefully will give me a little bit of a benefit going into Donington so next week we'll talk about what we did after um, Donington and we'll talk about the preparations ready for the actual race at Donington we've also been um, busy with Matthew's car um, and we're trying to get that turned around in time for Donington but as I was saying last week we have also got that backup car which we've now prepared 
just in case it doesn't happen. Unfortunately, we're waiting on quite a few parts, um, which I don't know if they're going to be back in time. So fingers crossed, though. Um, we've got everything we can do our end essentially ready. Just when these parts arrive, it will be a case of pulling as many hours as possible um, to get it all sorted. But hopefully after today, there's very little to do with my car other than just a fluid change. As I said, we've already done the brakes and the full check over and there was no problems after Silverstone. So fingers crossed we have no other issues today, but so far so good. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com. 